This is Dolio, an original thriller fiction podcast presented in serialized format, a chapter at a time. Written by Jared Canton, narrated by Joshua Canton, a Steady Chaos production, 2019. Previously on Dolio. Do you remember anything else? He he took off my clothes. I, I didn't say no. Her eyes caught the light and I watched as they sparkled through tears. Her mouth rounded and she blew a short, calm breath out. The smell of cinnamon gum splashed my face. Then I, I think I took off his pants, or, or maybe he did. We were both pretty much naked after that. I remained still, gave her time. Time to recount for the first time aloud what she must recount in her mind every waking minute. He... he was touching me. She brought her arms across her chest and locked her hand on the opposite elbow protectively, her shoulder twisted up unevenly. When he got on top of me, I I said stop. He did. Her hands rubbed her upper arms, still draped in front of her protectively. Then he rolled off of me, and I started to fall asleep. But before I could, I felt him get back on top of me. I told him no, but this time he didn't listen. He started, and I, I remember pushing on his chest. I knew I couldn't stop him, so I asked him to wear a condom. I don't know why I did it, or how I mustered the courage. He laughed and put one on, made some kind of crude comment I can't remember, and, and I pushed on his chest hard, told him no. I hit him, and then he held both my arms down. Her hands began shaking, and she pulled him to her mouth. Breath burst from her mouth, and she began to cry. I stood and made my way over to her. I'm so sorry this happened to you. Her red eyes looked up at me. Her face was blotchy, and her lower lip shook slightly. If you can find the strength to say what you just did to me, in court, he'll never hurt anyone again. Will you be there? Just ten feet away. Will he be there? He will. With a final sigh, she wiped her face dry, and in a manner greatly betraying her limited years, she said, Let's do it. Episode 7, Buzz Park Street Station, same cheer for the Green Line. Park Street Station, same cheer for the Green Line. Government Center. The conductor, driver, or engineer, whatever they called them, droned from the T's loudspeaker. I carved my way through the crowded Boston Transit Authority rush hour masses. The unkempt, industrial-looking train car, known simply as the T, screeched to a lumbering halt. Through the window, I observed as the underground station bustled with activity and stewing noise. I centered my briefcase across my torso like a plow and made inadvertent but inevitable contact with at least 13 strangers while maneuvering to the sliding door. 
My feet hit the concrete outside the train, where another cluster of strangers smashed together, scurrying and jockeying for position into a narrowing gate like agitated cattle. I worked my way across the concrete box of a room, past two coffee stands and a Boston t-shirt stand, where I reached an escalator before opting for the traditional stairs. The stairs were wider and far less crowded, and I briskly ascended them two at a time. The late fall breeze blasted my bare face as other scurrying humans concealed their heads in hoods and hats, and faces in scarves and collars. I slithered through them until I reached the overcrowded metal bars near the latest, but hardly the only, construction taking place in downtown Boston. The steel scaffolding covered the sidewalk, and created a human tunnel that slowly filtered frustrated people through two at a time. I darted out of the other side of the tunneled structure, just in time to dodge a heavy-set man as he hopelessly angled to squeeze his way around me. I glanced left, then right, and sprinted across the street despite the glowing orange hand insisting I reconsider. Watch it! A man yelled from his window. Despite the apparent briskness of the evening, he lurched his entire body outside the driver's side window as he passed, communicating his displeasure with sharp word fragments and rabid hand gestures. I responded with an apologetic but dismissive wave, and slipped into the next steel staging line pathway. Then I felt it. A mysterious but gentle tap nodded the back of my head, and an intense sense of deja vu consumed my thoughts. I wandered back in time, back to that fateful fight with Brett, a day my prideful selfishness drove a tragic outcome. The subject of the mental trigger this time, however, was not that entire heartbreaking event. It was not yet another reliving of the anxiety, regret, and dread from the Denton Elementary disaster, but rather a memory specific to that brief moment preceding Andrew's errant punch. It was that instant of precognition, the moment I had sensed physical contact coming and instinctively avoided it. Since that day, that tactile warning of impending harm had driven many sleepless nights. As a child, I had recalled Dr. Anderson educating Dad on the two qualities most unique to my particular iteration of CIPA. Tactile hyperesthesia and heightened titillation were afflictions, or perhaps curious abilities, inherent in my condition. I could feel touch, and light touch, more intensely and acutely than normal people. Dad had hypothesized my heightened sense of touch was the reason I didn't encounter injuries as commonly as other CIPA sufferers. While I didn't have a traditional pain response, Dad felt that increased sensitivity to even the lightest of touches could serve as an equally, or even more effective, warning system. Sensing physical contact at its lightest, even unnoticeable levels for others, could trigger my brain to react and evade. This was the only rational explanation I could fathom for how I'd anticipated and escaped Andrew's punch. I hadn't seen nor heard it coming, but I'd felt it. Possibly, I'd detected the energy, breeze, or the atmospheric shift it generated, but I had in fact sensed it. And now, as an adult, I was experiencing the same feeling again, for only the second time, but instead of reacting, I was frozen, in a loop, analyzing this latest warning cyclically. The world quaked around me, and I lurched forward, away from the gentle gnawing sensation at my neck. A similar decision had served me well the last time. All-encompassing reverberations of carnage, twisting steel, shattering wooden planks, and locked-up tires on pavement filled the night air. The concrete sidewalk hit back and its rough grit flayed the skin from my elbows as my army crawled forward, away from the deafening threat. An intense sensation consumed my lower body. I looked back in time to see a small car lumber over my leg before colliding hard with the concrete barrier to my left. The staging rattled, groaned, and dropped metal and wooden remnants from the sky. 
vertical weight-bearing post to my left, apparently clipped by the car, bent at a 90-degree angle, and the entire staging buckled, sliding wooden platforms from above. They landed atop and dented the small car, now at a full stop, steam spraying from its radiator. A star-shaped series of cracks had spidered across the windshield. I crawled free of the staging in time to hear a deep horn bellow, cascading an echo down the street between two large high-rises. I scrambled to my feet, and my left leg resisted, buckling. I reached down and squeezed it, lifted my pant leg. My calf was red and swollen, but it didn't appear broken. I tested it with a stomp, and it held. I limped far enough into the street to see the horrifying source of the horn. A hiss thundered from a large semi-truck as its air brakes activated. The nose of the truck dove downward as I observed the driver in the cab urgently yank the oversized steering wheel. The truck's front end hopped loudly, resisting the mechanical effort to brake as it bore down on the small car, which was now half-buried under scaffolding remnant. I looked back at the car, front seat, man, slumped unconscious. The back seat was not visible from my angle. I'd never make it in time. I watched helplessly as the truck skittered, now almost perpendicular to the direction it continued sliding. The flatbed payload reacted in an opposite fashion, folding the massive vehicle into a jackknife shape. The truck cab missed the car by mere feet, but the flatbed clipped the staging near the car hard, dumping its payload. Large wooden crates collapsed atop the vehicle like a pile of alphabet blocks over a matchbox car. The wooden crates split and splintered. Two slid off the car's roof, one from the hood, and they wedged themselves and piled upon one another between the car and the truck bed. The force pushed the car even tighter against the concrete barrier and staging remnants. Two oddly dressed truck drivers, one tall, one wide, jumped from the truck and scampered wearily towards the car, eyeing the scene inquisitively. Before I could react, they reached a large crate that had lodged itself against the passenger side door. They slid their hands under the box and lurched upward, but it barely budged. They stepped back hesitantly. One of the men, the taller of the two, began swinging wildly at the air. He broke into a sprint away from the accident as I hobbled towards it. Stay back, the wide man yelled. What's going on? I continued forward, peering left to see the taller man fervently waving back a gathering crowd. I anticipated flames or a fuel spill, and the resulting explosion you might see in an 80s action movie. Bees! The wide man yelled. Bees? I said. We're a seasonal transport for pollination hives! He yelled across the remaining distance between us. Are you serious? I scolded. He raised his arms to the sky apologetically. And you took the damn truck into the city streets? Took the wrong exit! We have to get out of here! He yelled as I closed the gap on him. A gentle buzz grew in volume with every step. What about him? I yelled, nodding towards the man in the car, still unconscious. I'll have to get the rest of my gear on, then I'll come back and try to get him out of there, but you should back the fuck up! A loud clang and another, in cascading fashion, interrupted our conversation. A steel bar rolled off the remaining portion of the scaffolding. The long steel section javelined itself into the passenger side of the windshield and ripped the glass from its framing, exposing the man in the car to the cloud of furious bees. I don't think we can wait, I said, angling for a better view of the car. What I then saw dreadfully confirmed my theory. In the back was a car seat, more specifically, an infant car seat. It faced backwards and I could see the baby's reflection in a small mirror hanging from the headrest. The baby blinked, tilted its head ever so slightly, and then I heard it. There's a baby in there! Help me lift that box! I pointed, maybe ten feet away, to the crate that had fallen against the rear passenger side door. If we can lift that back onto the flatbed, I think we can get her out. That's several severed hives. It's cool out, and they're pissed. You have no idea what you're getting yourself into. 
The swarm of bees thickened, and several landed on and around the shattered windshield to the car. The wide man shook his head violently and retreated back towards his truck. Fucking bees. I threw my hands up and ran towards the cloud. The buzz grew in intensity until it was an all-consuming hum. I tried to move calmly, to limit my actions to only necessary motions and disruptions to the swarm. I could feel the tiny legs of the bees on my skin, my neck, ears, and then in my shirt and up my pant legs. I could sense them walking, almost each stride uniquely, but I couldn't tell if they were stinging me. I wasn't allergic, or so I didn't think. That said, I couldn't specifically recall ever being stung. Focus. I reached the crate, with my left hand pushed hard at its top, creating a small gap at the base, and with my right hand I jammed a length of steel scaffolding under it. The deafening buzz continued. My skin crawled with tiny touches, sending uncontrollable shivers throughout my body. I levered the crate up with the pipe and threw my hand under it, then another, and lined the top edge against the flatbed. I squatted low and stood, elevating the box on one side, the other perched atop the flatbed edge. The hard part, however, was transitioning my grip to press it up and over that edge. I bent at the knees, preparing to explode upwards to create the momentum to shift grips and press it above my shoulders, while my injured leg refused the load. I staggered back awkwardly and the crate crashed to rest. I panicked, looked through the insect cloud, saw no help coming, just the distant wails of a siren. I peeked into the sliver of back window not covered by the high crate remnants. There were bees moving awkwardly, slowly, walking along the edge of the car seat. My mind sifted through access possibilities. I couldn't lift the crate, not like this, not alone. I needed another option. Of course. The windshield. It was littered with glass shards, but it was an opening. I moved to the front of the car and crawled atop the hood belly down. I slipped under a section of scaffolding, pressing hard against the car's metal. I could feel bees crunching as I slithered across the hood, working my way over their cold, delicate bodies to the precipice of the windshield opening. The entryway was lined with twisted glass shards, some interconnected by an almost invisible film that held them together despite the cracks and breaks. The path was jagged, glass edging the opening like shark teeth. The inside of the car buzzed alive with sound. Bees occupied every nook and cranny and they darted angrily off windows and seat backs like irate miniature pinballs. I slid into the opening, felt pressure, and briefly envisioned the glass tearing at my stomach before forcing the thought back into a distant alcove of my mind. The baby's tiny face came into view. She had three or four red blotches scattered across plump cheeks. The buzzing yielded temporarily to more urgent infant cries, and I unhooked the car's seat harness with my off hand. Leaning against the center console, I lifted the baby from her seat and wrapped her in a pink blanket that had been previously strewn across her lap. I pulled her tightly to my body and scooted in reverse, wriggling backwards out of the windshield opening. On the way past, I reached for the driver's seatbelt buckle. I tried to trigger the release button. Nothing happened, because it wasn't fastened. At that moment, I suspected with strong certainty that he was dead, and that his forehead was the original cause of the web-like cracks in the windshield. I continued, one arm wrapped tightly around the baby, with little strength or dexterity available to keep my full body weight off the glass shards. I made it to, and rolled off the hood, stumbled to the pavement with the baby carefully secured. The truck driver appeared before me, full B gear, like a NASA astronaut greeting an extraterrestrial. I handed over the infant and he turned and sprinted from the scene. I leaned forward, hands to knees, forcing a butt of dizziness from my head. I leapt back upon the hood, reached my right arm in, clasped the collar of the driver's shirt, and reeled him out from the car. I turned and in a single motion yanked and then dragged the man atop my shoulder with a shot put-like motion. My feet staggered and I hunched hard forward as I carried him on my back away from the incessant buzz of the angry cloud. Red and blue lights flashed to my right and I mechanically turned in that direction 
towards a tall figure. Dark blue pants, blue shirt, blurry, flashing lights behind him. We got you, man, he said. He ushered me to a bench at the edge of the sidewalk and asked me a few questions. I gave the answers I assumed he wanted, and he passed me off to a medical professional. She asked a number of similar questions, inspected my stings, administered a shot of some kind to address my venom-induced dizziness, and departed, apparently satisfied with my condition. The tall man in blue returned. By now, it was clear he was a beat cop. You saved that baby, he said after a bewildering pause. He had a curious look on his face, as if he were sizing me up. And the guy? I asked. I figured you'd ask that. Nobody could have saved him. He was the grandfather. Died of a heart attack. It probably caused the accident. I nodded. You sure you're okay, man? I nodded again, wiggling the foot of my injured leg. The swelling had subsided some, and my range of motion had mostly returned. According to witnesses and paramedics, you were run over by a car, stung three dozen times and buried under scaffolding. It's incredible what you went through for that little girl. If he only knew of my condition, sacrifice would prove far less significant. My condition, my history of failed efforts and heroism, they both mitigated this apparent victory. Every victory. And still, despite my best efforts, a man was dead. He shook his head and exhaled at my silence. <sighs> you should go to the hospital. Get checked out, man. When your adrenaline wears off, you're gonna be in a world of hurt. I'm good. With one final nod, I stole a glance at the carnage of the scene before burying it at my back. Another tragic event. Another brutal reminder. This world is a reliable abundance of cruelty and tragedy. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed Dolio, please come back for future episodes arriving at regular intervals, and subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast application. Please visit the Steady Chaos Productions YouTube page and subscribe for more content from our production team.